So similar to the first time I think I preached uh, the first week, I'm going to break the rules of what I was taught about preaching and do all the preliminary comments and thoughts that I have to say uh, and not just go right into the sermon because you're supposed to just go right into your sermon. It has been an amazing privilege to be with you and to spend this summer with you. And I want to thank a couple of people by name as well as all of you just as a congregation. I'm very grateful uh, to Ryan and to Leslie for their support, for um, Ryan doing slides for me at 7 a.m. on Sundays because I sent them at 6.30 a.m. like today. And, and Leslie just organizing everything throughout the week and just their support and their consistency with me in that support uh, to the Renewal team for your trust, for your invitation to come and uh, with Nate's blessing to say, yes, this, this seems good that you would be here for the summer with us. Um, Mike and Carol, you've done uh, qu- quite a bit of work for the Enneagram uh, workshops we've done and then Mike just being that liaison for me of connection and having that person to kind of go to in terms of what's happening in the life of the church. I'm grateful to both of you for that support as well. And mostly to you as a congregation, that you would receive someone else. Uh, it's, it's one thing to receive somebody new, kind of like a guest speaker one week at a time, right? But then when someone comes in repetitively and comes to this space where we run this tension of what is the role of a pastor and preacher as someone who's uh, meant to hopefully speak on behalf of God in a true way, Uh, not necessarily maybe quite like the prophets of old, and yet at the same time meant to speak truth, meant to bring encouragement, meant to sometimes kind of prod and give challenge. And that's a unique circumstance. When it's Nate who knows you, who's been with you for years, you can say some things because you got the credibility to say them and And at times this summer, that's been something for me to think, how do I say this in a way that is uh, appropriate for what what is really a guest preacher over an extended period of time? Much of that becomes the congregation's willingness to receive that. And you have at least communicated that to me, that you have received my sharing with you uh, of what I've felt led to share with you from Scripture, from my life, uh, from your stories as well. So thank you for that. Thank you for that willingness to do that. And I know that as Nate comes back, uh, you look forward to that. Uh, I actually had a brief text exchange this past week with him. Um, Yes, it was a picture of Antigua beaches that he was reminding me of that he's there and I'm not again. Uh, And and yet clearly I was like, you look very relaxed. (laughs) And that's a really, really good thing. Uh, My experience for the summer, numerous of my friends have asked me about it, and as I've talked about this congregation and who you are, the word that keeps coming back to me is sincerity. There is something beautifully sincere that I have experienced about who you are. Sincere in your relationships with one another, sincere ultimately in your relationship with God. There's a sincerity of, uh, maybe authenticity would be a, a similar type of word, that I've experienced of who you are to live your faith and to walk with Jesus and to do that in community with one another. The way that you don't leave quickly, the way that the outer area has lots of people after service and before service talking and interacting with one another. You do have something unique and special, and sometimes it's good to hear that, isn't it? And sometimes in our culture, and I'm just going to kind of be candid and honest about this, uh, sometimes... My experience has been with both pastors of churches of your size as well as congregation members uh, in a church of your size. There is a wondering of, okay, what's our place? Because Grace will take care of that. Traders Point will take care of that. Northview will take care of that. They're up to who knows how many campuses. Other, the mega church will do all that. And it's just not true. The majority of the churches of America are this size or smaller. And God uses you just as impactfully, if not more, than the megachurch. And I spent a lot of time in that megachurch world, and I respect it, and I appreciate it, and I appreciate all that was shared there, and it has its place in God's kingdom work in this world. And so do you. So never doubt that. God does not care the size. I think you know that. You know it doesn't matter. The world around us is all about numbers and getting bigger, and that has infiltrated the church. 
And if it's latched onto as the truth about what is good and healthy means it's growing and getting larger and larger, then we've bought into a lie. Because health is not defined by numbers. Health is defined by the sincerity of the people to walk with Jesus and walk with each other. And my experience of you is that that is what you have. And that has been a privilege to be a part of. Those of you that have spent time with me in the Enneagram, you know that my Enneagram number tells me that I'm feeling repressed, which means I have a hard time sometimes knowing actually what I feel. So I wrote some words down about what I actually feel today as I finish up my time with you. I feel grateful, deeply grateful. I feel proud of who you are and the experience I've had to interact with you in this way. I feel joy. I feel some regret because I know I preached too long quite a few times. Uh, Nate did tell me that he preaches 45 minutes, but I didn't really mean to go that long or longer sometimes. I feel deep contentment about the gift that this has been from God. But then I was trying to figure out the other word that I feel in relationship to maybe what's been most significant for me this summer. And maybe comfort is, it is, the, word, is the word for it. I'm not sure if it is. Uh, this experience for me has been healing in ways that I didn't know I needed and I don't totally understand. I've shared some of our story with you, obviously, of our transition from pastoral work at Grace. And uh, I just can say that my experience has had a, a, a significant healing component. And if you asked me to explain it to you, I don't think I, I just, I don't think I could. I just know I've experienced it. And it's been significant and it's been important. And I'm grateful to you again for that, that you would allow me this space to be with you. Uh, in our journey, and, and whatever that means for the future of intersecting with this congregation, and this season, and this, and this time, you have been a tremendous blessing to me, and to my family, and uh, for us in the navigation of what we've experienced over the last couple years. It has indeed been a summer of renewal for me personally as well, in walking this journey with you. And so, in that role with you, uh, you close this week the book Sacred Rhythms. We close the book Sacred Rhythms with chapter 9 discussion. And so I want to take a moment and I want to talk about that before I actually talk about what I'm really going to talk about today uh, in terms of blessing the city. I hope you've been keeping up with the reading, but even if you've not kept up with the reading of the chapters, I would encourage you to get to chapter 9 and take time with that chapter. Maybe even show up this week on Wednesday for your discussion around it. Because chapter 9 of Sacred Rhythms takes all that's been shared in her uh, leading through various spiritual disciplines and says, how do you now create a rule of life? Rule of life is a phrase that comes from the, mo the monks, the monastic tradition the rule of life, that the way we're going to live in community and in our life. And she has a great question in the early part of the chapter where she simply says, you're looking to create, I'm looking to create a rule of life so that I can be intentional with who I am and so I can think about how do I want to live to become the person who I want to be? How will I live now with God to become the person that God wants me to be? It's all about intentionality and rule of life. And she guides you through very simply with what, what do you do daily? What do you do weekly? What do you do monthly? Maybe quarterly, maybe yearly. What do you do individually? What do you do in community? And so I, at the end of the chapter, she actually gives you the opportunity with questions to guide you through. I want to strongly encourage you to take time with that. Again, even if you've not read much of the rest of the book, more than likely, you have practices and disciplines with God already in place in your life. And this is just being able to say, I know with intentionality how this is going to be a part of my life going forward, and I know why I want it to be. And she has anecdotes of reminding us of things like exercise is a spiritual discipline. Exercise is something that actually helps us connect us to God. She reminds us that flexibility is important, that we want to find our space to do that. She makes a great emphasis on space and time. Like, you might want to have a very particular chair that you go to repeatedly, and that's kind of your space where your books are there, your Bible is there, your journal's there. For me, that's my porch in the summer, and in winter, it sometimes takes me a while to transition to find where's my space again in the winter months that has the right kind of lighting that I can actually uh, wake up to, you know, not the stark light, but just kind of wake up slowly 
which I can do on the porch when the sun just kind of comes up slowly in that way. But that's important to find. What is that space and time for you? Uh, she talks about the morning and how the morning is, the reason we talk about being with God in the morning is the morning is our most undefended state. Undefended state. We wake up in the morning and we don't have a whole day behind us that we're thinking about. We don't have all these different things that have happened to us that have made us kind of clench up in our day. It's kind of an opportunity to say it's a new day and I kind of haven't really thought through everything yet. And the first thing I do is I connect with God in more of this undefended state. I love that picture. And I want to encourage you with that, to think about that for your morning. And remember, too, that when we talk about a rule of life, we're talking about communal aspects as well. What was mentioned last week and mentioned here again, what's the rhythm for you in your intentionality of who you want to be when it comes to small groups? Where does that fit in in your rule of life? And it relates to how you look at your work as you engage God's story. How does your work fit into your rule of life of, of the way that you are going to daily or maybe weekly or monthly think about how you're intentionally becoming who you believe God has you to be in your workplace in that sense. And maybe even there'll be something today as uh, we highlight as the thought of engaging our city we're finishing this little series about faith and work and our engagement in that gets us to think about how we engage our city and that there's something about engaging our city that is meant to be part of our rule of life. So again, I just want to encourage you, urge you even to take the time, set it aside for the sake of your intentionality and your discipleship to think through this rule of life idea. And again, allow the consideration of your story connecting with God's story in the workplace in the workplace for the sake of the city. And that's where I want to go today for our final message. Engaging the city. Thinking about what it is for us to connect our faith into our workplace for the sake of the city. Last week, I talked to you about uh, these results from a study conducted a few years ago that said that only 30% of people can clearly see how their work serves God. And how almost 80% of people said, the work I do is not as important as my pastor's work. And so last week, I gave you the invitation to see your work as God sees your work, that work is good, that your work has intrinsic value, and that when it's aligned with God's mission, when it's a part, you see it as part of God's story, it's also ministry, every bit of it as important as your pastor's work. And so see your work as God, see your, God sees your work so that you can engage it with passion and purpose. And it's all a part of this story of God. It's all a part of this story that we've walked through a couple of different times actually this summer where we've thought about what does it mean for there to be God's creation out of love and then for there to be this fall and rebellion time. And out of that fall and rebellion, God calls a people to himself. And in calling a people to himself, it was so that God could demonstrate the difference of who God is through the Israelites. That led, of course, to Jesus. Jesus then revealing the fullest revelation of God that we've ever seen in this world. That then leads us to be the sent people of God, where we find that we are now part of that sent people. And on that picture that I showed on the screen previously, there was that gap between being the sent people of God and the new creation. And in that space between the sent people of God and the new creation, there's nothing exactly on that other side of the arrow from Acts because that's where we fit in. We slot in right after that arrow because we're part of that arrow moving towards the new creation. And what we do with God in mission, when we participate in God's mission, we become the signposts and the witnesses for what is to come. We, we foreshadow what is to come in the new creation when the heavens and earth will be renewed, as Revelation 21 and 22 show us. And that in this, we are to see our work within this unfolding story of God's mission. We are to see our work in the unfolding mission of love that God has in the world that's particularly being expressed through his loving reconciliation of the world. And that we have a part to play. We're meant to contribute a verse. We are meant to write a paragraph of this story. And this participation in God's mission is always contextual, meaning there's always a context in which we find ourselves in mission. In other words, it's contextual 
within the place where we live. Place matters to God. Place matters to God. Interestingly enough, in theological circles of writers and authors in the academic world, there's this growing conversation around the idea of a theology of place. What does a theology of place mean? What is God saying to us about the place where we find ourselves, the place where we live? So it's why I've chosen to emphasize here in these weeks our understanding not only of renewal for ourselves, in ourselves and in our relationships, but that that renewal also then includes the renewal of community, that we're pursuing renewal of the community in which we live. And though I didn't know it initially at the time when I was little growing up in Syracuse, New York, I learned this idea of renewal of one's community from my dad. I learned this truth that as God's people, we are called to a place. We are to see where we live as the, as the place that God has called us to and brought us to for however long that is. And in that place, we are to seek the peace and the prosperity and the welfare of that place, of that city. My dad pastored for a few years here in Indianapolis, actually, in the early 1970s. He was a part of, he was a pastor at Faith Church, which now uh, resides at 91st and College, but back then was in Broad Ripple, right next to the Hubbard and Cravens in Broad Ripple off Carrollton, if you've been down there. Prior to that, my dad had been a missionary in China, in India, and in Hong Kong. And honestly, his desire in many ways was to go back to the mission field. And I won't go into the story about why that became challenging and the, the journey of his life and uh, what he experienced. But eventually he found himself in Indianapolis and he thought it was going to initially be temporary because he thought he'd be going back probably into the field with the family. It was in Indy that I was born and in Indy that that became clearer that okay he's not going back overseas and and pastoring this church became a big piece of what he was going to do. And then around uh, 1975, it became apparent that that season was closing to be pastor of the church, at Faith Church, and something new was on the horizon. Something new was to come and to be. And that newness to be was to move to this city that only gets 60 days of sunshine a year, (laughs) and 180 inches of snow every year on average. And and it's actually in a beautiful part of New York, except that it's not sunny enough. and it gets really cold in winter, but it became our home, Syracuse, New York. And though my dad did some pastoring, my dad also was the general manager of a Christian radio station. You see that he had done that back in India. He had done managerial work with Christian radio, international Christian radio spread around the world. And I learned later in life that, my, that God gave my dad the passage we're going to look at today, Jeremiah 29, as we moved to Syracuse. God gave that to him to say, you are coming to this city, Syracuse, and it's not India, it's not China, it's not Hong Kong, it's not like going back home to Newcastle, England, where my dad is originally from. It's a totally different type of place. It's not on your radar to be in Syracuse, New York. I'm from New York. Oh, the city? No, there's actually a whole other part of the state besides the city. And so for that, my dad... Honestly, in many ways, in the season of life he was in, in the mid-70s, my dad needed a word from God. And God gave him that word, Jeremiah 29. And God gave him the word at the heart of that, Gordon, my dad's name, seek the peace and the prosperity of this city. Use your place as a general manager of this Christian radio station to not just have a holy huddle, to not just shrink in to the Christian blue pages. You know what I'm talking about? The Christian blue pages, like to get a Christian plumber, you go to the Christian blue pages because somehow there's not Christian plumbers in the yellow pages. If you even know what the yellow pages are, we, we, we had the yellow pages delivered. We showed it to our children. Have you seen this before? No. This is the old version of Google, right? I need, anyway. And so for my dad, it was God's call to him to say, when you come here, sure, you're working for a Christian ministry, but will you see your work and your place in this city for the sake of this city? That your ministry and your radio station that you will lead will be blessed based on the welfare of this city. And that's how he lived. Making his connections beyond the Christian circles with the city building his reputation in the city as a man of peace and integrity 
who cared about the city, not just about the church within the city, not just the people of God within the city, who saw his vision of ministry in that space to be beyond just that Christians were listening to that radio station. How could that radio station bring good to the city? How could my dad's words and what they did at the station call the people of God in Syracuse to think about the city of Syracuse and the goodness of that? And so I want to look together at Jeremiah 29 in this passage that God gave to him. So turn there with me to Jeremiah 29. Because it still speaks the same vision for us today. That we are called by God to join with God in God's mission. God is going to use our workplace as well as where we live to do that. And it is for the sake of the flourishing of the city in which we live. And I'll invite you to choose the word city for yourself. City for you might be Fishers because you live in Fishers. You work in Fishers. Your life is in Fishers. Maybe you are in Noblesville across 146th Street. Maybe you're from Carmel and you want to choose that city. You decide. Maybe you consider Indianapolis your city. Maybe you think of it as Hamilton County. Your decision of what that is. But you seek the context, the welfare, the peace, and the prosperity of the context in which you live. So in Jeremiah 29, let's start in verse 1, and then we'll go down through till about verse 14. We'll skip a little bit here of some of the, the detail stuff. But Jeremiah 29.1. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, the priests, and the prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, we're going to pause there. This is in the first very beginning part of the 6th century B.C. Likely this letter was written around 597 B.C. If you know anything about Israel's history, the ten tribes of Israel were taken into captivity and exiled by Assyria in 722 BC. Now the last two tribes of Judah are in process of being taken into exile. Their final king, the final king of Judah, will be Zedekiah, and that will be in 586. So this is written about 10 years before all of Israel is in exile. Right now at 597, most of Israel is in exile. And they're now in exile not by Assyria, but by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar. And so Jeremiah, now as the prophet, is writing to the leaders of the Israelites in their exilic situation. Jump down to verse 4. This is what Jeremiah, or verse 3, this is what Jeremiah's letter said. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens. See, like I said last week, plant a tree. And eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them. In other words, you're going to be here for a little while. So that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, Israel. Don't dwindle away. And work. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it and for its welfare. For its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of the heavens' armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and foretellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Don't listen to their dreams, because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is a reference from Jeremiah to other parts where, in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah has to refute false prophets who are saying, this is going to be quick, you're going to be out of here fast, God's going to come in and take care of this. And this is Jeremiah saying, stop listening to them, settle down, plant a tree, multiply and have kids, have your kids have kids and marry, because you're going to be here for a little bit. Then verse 11, 10, this is what the Lord says, you will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. Which, by the way, God did, because we start to read in Ezra and Nehemiah, going back to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple. And that was in about 522 B.C., going into the 400s, high 400s B.C. Verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for your good, Israel, and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. 
Now, you may have caught in there uh, the most famous verse uh, of this chapter, arguably probably for some people, right? The most famous verse, maybe in the Old Testament, besides in the beginning God created. Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, hope in a future. In Lectio Divina, for God to use that to give you assurance of God's care for your future, receive that every day, all day, any day. In actual Bible study, never use that to talk about your future unless you truly have been sent into exile like the Israelites. <laughs> because God's plans for them are very specific. You're in a difficult space. I put you there, frankly, because you were disobedient, idolatrous, and you forgot to care for the poor and the marginalized. You read Ezekiel, you learn very quickly, and the other prophets. One of the main reasons they're in exile is they forgot to care for the poor and the marginalized. So I'm putting you into exile to get your attention. So you will stop being idolatrous. And so multiply. Don't dwindle. But the way you're ultimately going to be blessed is verse 7. Work for the peace and the prosperity of the city. Pray to the Lord for it. For the welfare of the city will be your welfare. Now this had to be a strange command to the Israelites. Uh, seek the welfare of these idolatrous Babylonians who are treating us horribly and putting us into exile and who are clearly your enemies. God, we're your people. They're your enemies. Aren't we like supposed to be undermining them? Shouldn't we like be doing things like where, where it's like co we're covert spies who are going to take them down? Like you'd think that that would be maybe what God's thought would be. And yet God clearly says, no. No, be people of peace. Be people of increasing their prosperity. Let them have more. Want for them to be even better because you've been there. What a very different perspective to have than what you would think God would want for them. This is an echo of Genesis 12. To bless the nations. This is an echo of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is what God said to Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. That's ultimately Israel. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Israel's name became great through the kings, through Saul, but especially David and then Solomon. Solomon and all his wisdom, all his riches, people from all around the world, right? You know the story of Queen of Sheba? Coming, I've heard of your fame, Solomon. I will make your name great, Israelites, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is what God is saying in Jeremiah 29. I want you to live out what I told Abraham I was going to do through you. In this part of the story of being my called people in preparation for Jesus, this is how I want you to live. Because what's going to happen is even in Babylon, people are then going to learn I'm the one true God. Remember I mentioned to you, I think, I hope, I think I did, yes, I did last week. Ah, sure. Uh, that God, in the Old Testament, God was tied, God, excuse me, the gods were tied to land. You change land, you change gods. So if Yahweh is with them in Babylon when they've been taken from their land into Babylon's land, this is an amazing opportunity for Israel to demonstrate the difference of Yahweh. Oh, this is a God who's with the people, not with the land. And interestingly enough, God gives us this picture of what actually happens when you seek the peace and prosperity of the city through the story of Daniel. So turn over to Daniel chapter 1. Because Daniel is his story of being in exile in the exact time that Jeremiah prophesied about. Daniel is with the Israelites in the time of Jeremiah's admonishment to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. Daniel's part of the Babylonian captivity and Daniel seeks to, or demonstrates what it is to seek the welfare of the city without compromise. Let's look at Daniel chapter 1, right at the beginning of it, verse 1. I'm going to read parts of this chapter and parts of another. 
During the third year of Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasury house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they're well-versed and in good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the service, the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah called Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, Azariah, Abednego. Not Benny, like uh, VeggieTales tells you. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. And I'll pause there and say, and the rest of the chapter goes on to say, okay, you guys eat the vegetables, not the rich foods of the meat that the king wants you to eat, and we'll see if you're healthy enough for royal service. And we come to verse 18 and we read this. When the training period ordered by the king was complete, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as these four Israelites, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel is in exile, like Jeremiah has talked about over and over. Daniel must have heard the message, it's my assumption, that Jeremiah had said, seek the peace and the prosperity. Daniel then is given favor by God, holds to the integrity of who he is. I will not defile myself with with these foods. And then proves his worth for the king. Note here in verse 20, whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, they were 10 times more capable than his own people. In other words, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not undermine the king. They did not enter into a covert operation to bring Babylon down. Right? Let's pause and make sure we see that. They had eyes for their peace and prosperity. Or they would not have been seen as capable in this way. We might say this, that Daniel proved his work through his work. That in his quote-unquote workplace, he demonstrated integrity and excellence and a care for the city. A care for his boss. A care for the people he worked with. And we see this living all through his life as we go to Daniel 6. Turn over to Daniel chapter 6. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king. Darius the Mede has now taken over. Persia has taken over Babylon. Darius the Mede in verse 1. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule. So the king also chose Daniel and two others as administers to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel just became one of three COOs. There's three COOs. The king's the CEO, and they're, you know, right? Chief operating officers under these executive vice presidents who are governing different provinces, regions, if you want to translate to today's language. Verse 3, Daniel soon proved himself more capable than the other administers and high officers. And because of Daniel's great ability, the king had made plans to place him over the entire empire. It's like the king had said, you know what, I think I'm going to go to president emeritus status and make him CEO. An Israelite. Let's pause on that. An Israelite. Not one of their own. Who has proven himself so readily well in his workplace and in his city to seek its peace and prosperity that he earns favor all the way to the top. 
not compromising his integrity, as we'll see in a moment, because he was always praying, always still living his faith, but finding that favor. I, I, I wonder what that might look like in your workplace, just for a moment, if I could take an aside. What would it look like for you in your workplace to so seek the peace and prosperity of your workplace for the sake of the city that maybe you're the quote-unquote outsider? Maybe, maybe you're in a family business and you're the only one that's not like part of the family. Like it, he's an Israelite and they're all Babylonians. He's not part of the family. And yet you have such integrity and excellence in your work and such passion to care for it that it's seen by everybody. I, I'm not sure exactly what that might look like, but I'm struck by the fact that the foreigner is getting the C-suite with the corner office overlooking the White River. Like, that's what he gets. Keep going. So then, we know in verse 4, we see what the administrators do. The other administrators and high officers are jealous, so they search for a fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, responsible, completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance is to accuse Daniel in connection with his rules of religion. So we know as we read on, right, that he, if you know the story, he actually then, uh, they, they actually coerce Darius into a law that says you can't pray. Daniel prays anyway, so Darius has to throw him in the lion's den. Verse 10, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and prayed anyway. It doesn't quite say that. He went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open, i.e., this is the way I've always done it. I'm not changing that. I'm not closing the windows. I'm not hiding. This is who I am. And prayed toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, as he'd always done, giving thanks to his God. And then we know he gets captured. He gets thrown in the lion's den. God shows up in the den, shuts the lion's mouths. Daniel is saved. And we come to verse 21. Daniel answered when the king cried, Long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in God's sight, and I have not wronged you, Darius. I have not wronged you. I have worked on your behalf, not just my God's behalf, your behalf. Last week, what we read from Colossians, you are serving God, but then like you're serving God, serve your master, serve your boss, as if it's Jesus. That's what Daniel did. Jump to verse 25. Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Remember Abrahamic covenant? Genesis 12, bless you to be a blessing to the nations. Through Darius now, all races, all nations, all languages hear this. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree everyone throughout the kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel and his name is Yahweh. He is the living God and will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In other words, it might just be that Darius is going to shake our hands in the new heavens and the new earth. Maybe. I don't, I don't know for sure. I mean, but I do know when I read this, that Daniel demonstrated the difference of his God in his integrity. And what happens to the king? Hey, everybody, all of you out there, because we're the top dog, uh, by the way, this God of Daniel, that's, that's the living true God. Oh, my goodness. What kind of witness is that? Because Daniel sought the peace and the prosperity and the welfare of his city. He didn't undermine it. He didn't take a covert operation. He obeyed God's words through Jeremiah. He lived for it to flourish. And the New Testament affirms this commitment for us as the people of God to seek peace, prosperity, and welfare. We see it highlighted in a couple places explicitly in Paul's words. Romans chapter 13, Paul writing towards the end of his letter to the Romans, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God Verse 6, this is why you have to pay taxes. Oh, really, God? For the authorities are God's servants, just kidding, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. Revenue, revenue. But if respect, then give them respect. And honor, give them honor. In other words, don't undermine. 
Don't have some covert operation to bring things down. Then to Timothy specifically, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Why? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Seek the prosperity and the peace, as Jeremiah said. This is good. It pleases God, who wants all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What is good and pleases God? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's what pleases God in this context. So what Jeremiah is challenging us to do, what Daniel is showing us to do, what Paul is affirming for us to do, what God has called us to do since the time of Abraham is to engage our work and our community for the sake of the city. For the sake of the place in which we live and we work and we play. As God's people on mission with God, participating in God's mission of loving reconciliation, in all of the manner of ways I described last week in Colossians 1, we are meant to engage this city with an eye to the place in which we will then live that mission. The context in which we find ourselves is meant to influence how we seek peace, prosperity, and welfare. So what might this look like practically? It could look like intentional work or intentional engagement with your neighborhood, where you choose to live how you bless others, how you are a person of peace, how you're a good neighbor. It might literally mean just for now, you, your first right step is how you engage your cul-de-sac. To seek the peace and the prosperity and the welfare of the people that are right there with you on your cul-de-sac. It, it might be intentional with your work that you are going to focus in your work not about how your company makes the most money, but how your company brings economic and civic benefit to the city of Fishers that you're going to see your work in a way that is not just for us and our company, we're all about us, but that we're actually all about how this benefits this city as well. You may find that it's about learning about your city and getting networked within the city to be a, a kingdom influence. Hamilton County has what's called the Hamilton County Leadership Academy. Does anybody know about this, the Hamilton County Leadership Academy? So this is similar to Indianapolis's uh, Leadership Indianapolis fellows program that they have called the Stanley K. Lacey Fellows Program for Indianapolis. This is the mission statement of the Hamilton County Leadership Academy. To connect people, cultivate a network of leaders, and inspire them to serve their community. Connect people, cultivate a network of leaders, and inspire them to serve their community. Goodness, if you change the word leader to disciple, you'd have the mission statement of a church, wouldn't you? <laughs> connect people, cultivate leaders, serve the community. So uh, I have a friend who, uh, two friends actually, who have done this leadership academy, and it's basically learning your, your county. It's going to the different cities within the county and learning about the county and learning what the needs are and coming to understand healthcare and education and government civic engagement and mental health, which you probably know through the schools, hopefully, mental health is a major initiative within the schools within Hamilton County right now. So maybe it's learning about your city, learning about your county, learning about and getting networked with. Uh, maybe it's attending homeowners association meetings, city council meetings, school board meetings. Maybe for you, you realize, oh, renewal of community in my rule of life, I'm going to the city council meeting every month. I might not say anything, but I'm going to at least know what's going on. I'm going to be a citizen of this city and engage in that way. Maybe it's educating yourself and others in preparation to vote, whether about a candidate or maybe it's a referendum that's coming on the vote. Not necessarily saying how to vote, but making sure people know the truth about the multiple layers of perspective as they go to vote. So they don't just get one slant, they actually get all of the slants. In Marion County, you have lots of conversation right now about the Indigo Red Line. And some people already hate it before it started on September 1st, and other people already love it. And as I do my work with Circle City Fellows, I keep getting exposed to different perspectives. And that's just the reality. There's lots of perspectives about it, and they all have some truth to them, and they need to be paid attention to. So what would it be maybe for you to seek the prosperity by a couple of you taking for this congregation how, how we all understand what's going on. So I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but at least know the truth about the issue that we're voting on with this referendum for Fishers, for Hamilton County. You might even consider taking an issue or the issues that candidates are stumping for and, and looking at them and saying, how do these line up in light of God's mission of reconciliation in the world? Maybe your participation in seeking the welfare of the city is knowing the peace and prosperity of the city will match up with the reign of God. 
So how does this match up with the reign of God? There's so many possibilities. The questions are whether we're asking, are we looking to see our city flourish? Are we asking God what our part looks like as individuals and even as a church congregation? Churches can fall in the really bad habit of doing everything themselves and doing everything themselves for their own internal programs. Instead of joining with what's already out active in the community, the church only has eyes to what's going on in the walls for its people. So what would it look like to bless the community as Christ's community church? I think you already know. I think your upcoming health fair is exactly that type of work that says this is a need in our community. How can we contribute to it and make everybody know? That's exactly what the church as the people of God can collectively do to bless their city. Ultimately, the many possibilities for seeking the peace and the prosperity and the welfare of the city come down to what's your first or next right step? What's your first or next right step to be on mission with God for the city? Can you simply take that first or next right step? Recently, an article was written that you can find if you want to online about a couple named Bill and Joanna Taft. Bill and Joanna Taft in the early 90s moved into an area of downtown called Heron Morton. Heron Morton is from 16th to 22nd, from Pennsylvania to Central. I used to live at 191st and 37. I had no idea where those streets were that I just named, so if you don't know, it's totally okay. Now I know them very well <laughs> because of where our life is down there by the Oaks Academy for school. But this little section called Heron Morton, when they moved there in the early 90s, a third of the houses were vacant, a third had been demolished, and a third were occupied. And the house they moved into with their young child at that time, their young daughter, had no running water and no heat. And in this article that you can read, it's called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Uh, and albeit uh, Bill has told me that the author seemed to uh, make it sound a little more idyllic than, than it might quite have been, than what they shared. But anyway, uh, it tells the story first of a woman named Jeannie, Jeannie already lived in the neighborhood, and Jeannie wanted all the neighbors in the neighborhood to be intentionally mindful. So she made up a newsletter, and she made, went door-to-door -door handing out the newsletter to 600 newsletters door-to-door -door in Heron Morton and some of the other surrounding little neighborhoods. Because Jeannie wanted to see the peace and the prosperity and the welfare of her city. I don't know if Jeannie would use those words. I'm going to use those words about Jeannie. It was a newsletter that was to update neighbors on what was going on, alert them to situations and circumstances, and also, like, just call them to action. Like, hey, just remember, if your streetlight goes out, call the city. Because if your streetlight is out in this area of town and someone walking underneath where the streetlight is out, they might get mugged. Like, that could happen, and that's not good. So let's take care of our neighborhood. Let's make sure it's a good, safe place to live. And she recruited Joanna to help pass out flyers. It was Joanna's first, well, maybe second, right next step. Their first right next step for them was choosing that place to live, that they felt like they were supposed to live there, and that they wanted to live there because they were hoping that they would see community redevelopment. And then Joanna starts handing out newsletters, and that work led to more and more and more for them. And Joanna and Bill Taft have had a tremendous influence, along with others, in that area, particularly of Indianapolis, and Indianapolis in general. They began to recruit people to move into their neighborhood because when there are vacant houses, those become places of crime or just no good behavior. They ended up participating in the starting of the Oaks Academy, a school that seeks the renewal of communities through racially reconciled educational context. They participated in starting a church congregation in an old historic church that was going to be abandoned called Redeemer PCA. They were uh, very significant, Joanna particularly, in the creation of the Harrison Center for the Arts because the artists in the area wanted something to connect to. This is what the neighborhood wanted, so they created it. They were involved in the creation of Heron High School as a charter school to help increase graduation rates for people in the city. They have done a lot of significant things that look like, oh my goodness, I'm, I, I could never do that, or oh, are you asking me to do that? Sounds so grand. And friends, they will tell you all they did was take simply their next right step. And their first right step was they chose to live in this neighborhood, and their next right step was hand out newsletters. And that's all they did. It was that simple. And it moved from there. And that's the point for us. Pursuing the welfare of the city is not that you have to be the agent of some massive change. It's just knowing what's my next right step 
on mission with God that God wants me to do. We have it in front of us. It may be in our workplace. It happens through our workplace. It happens in our community. But whatever it is, as part of God's mission, as participating in God's story, it's meant to be for peace. It's meant to be for prosperity. It's meant to be for the welfare of our city like it was for Daniel and all of the Israelites, obeying God's words through Jeremiah, work for the peace and prosperity of the city, pray for it, for the city's welfare will impact your welfare. And when we do this, we experience the renewal of community. Your work is good. Your work matters to God. Your work, as it's aligned with God's mission, is ministry every bit as important as your pastor's. And your work is done in the context of this city. A particular place whose own story matters and is the place where your story intersects. A city within which you are to play your part, contribute your verse, and write your paragraph. A city whose peace and prosperity and welfare is to be your pursuit. And so I invite you again today. See your work as God sees it. And so engage your work with passion and purpose for the sake of the city. Let's pray together. God, we need your help to do this. We need your help to do this because we need you to show us what our first right step is, our next right step is. We need you to tell us what that is. And whether we're here in Indianapolis for another year or we're here in our family for the next three generations of family, God, for each one of us, help us to see our context and our place. Help us to know where it is where we live. Indianapolis, Fishers, Hamilton County, whatever it is that we name as that place. And God, through our work and through our neighborhoods and community and where we live, would you lead us that we would be agents of your kingdom because of the peace and the prosperity we seek, because of the welfare that we go after in our prayers and in our actions to honor you, to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus.